With perspective, we get to see issues, problems, solutions, and thoughts in a different light. A problem might end up seeming bigger or small. With perspective, the solutions might end up being infinite or limited. Chemshabongo is a podcast that seeks to trigger a change in how you perceive things, how you react to events, and how you approach things that you do. We do this by hosting a number of voices, presenting their different perspectives. For the last part of the show, we'll be having an excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. By the end of this episode, we hope that you find more power in what is behind your eyes and stop focusing solely on what is in front of them. This is Chimshabongo. Hello, I am Obi Obiridiambo. I'm a writer, theater practitioner, strategic communications scholar, and social commentator. In this edition of Chemshabongo, I address the issue of the nature of African cities and the rise of the question whether they are indeed African cities or a pale shade and struggling replica of the Euro-American cities. To put this question in context, I will remind you that the AfriCity Summit has just recently ended, hosted by the lakeside city of Kisumu. It was hailed as a great success. However, I was in Kisumu during the period immediately preceding the conference, and many local inhabitants could only think of the conference as a major inconvenience and at worst, an irritant. This reaction arose from the relocation of the small-scale businesses from the CBD. Yet the conference was important beyond the much-touted economic opportunities it was meant to offer. What about the others? AfriCities brings together the leadership of cities and sub-national governments and their associations to deliberate on how to advance decentralization and local governance so that a higher standard of living for the citizens can be achieved. AfriCity summits have been held every three years since 1998, and the first ever was held in Abidjan, Ivory Coast, and other major cities like Johannesburg, Dakar, and Marrakech have played host to the summit. This was the first time a so-called intermediary city was hosting the summit. I am sure Kisumu residents would not take it too kindly to their city being referred to as an intermediary city. You see, intermediary has the feel of an almost city, and Kisumu residents never do anything in halves. Globally, intermediary cities like Kisumu are home to 20% of the world's population and a third of the total urban population. Because of their smaller size, intermediary cities are expected to be able to guarantee and provide basic housing needs to their citizens more efficiently and cheaply than metropolitan areas. Question is, does Kisumu do this? A more disturbing question is this, does an African feel at home in an African city? Does the architecture and the infrastructure reflect African heritage, culture, and tradition? Do the colors and the sounds reflect African rhythms and hues? 
does the aroma that wafts from the African city-eating places remind one of the proverbial mother's cooking? Do the conversations held along the streets at barbershops, hairstylists, at the stalls of the vegetable and fruit sellers and fishmongers reverberate in African languages and other conversations about African issues? Do the shops stock African wear, African books, and African fabrics? The most disturbing question will probably be, are the large businesses in African cities owned managed and operated by Africans or are Africans simply consumers, customers and laborers? Sadly, African cities have adopted a catch-up with Euro-American approach. Little thought goes into authentic African or African-inspired design. It is as if modernization and authenticity cannot go together. A more Afrocentric worldview informing the social and economic development blueprints would offer more opportunities for improving livelihoods for the masses who are left out of the Afri-City Summit. African cities need to reflect Africa and be home to the African people. They last for the glory, they last for the crown, but last not one bit for the sleepless nights, for the pulling hair, for the pulling teeth. Heavy is the crown, careful what you seek. Hi, I'm Kikara Kamweru, Senior Lecturer in Architecture at the University of Nairobi. Let us focus on our urban life. One of the challenges we have as we continue along the devolution path in Kenya is to give identity to each of our towns. When our towns acquire distinctive characters, they will serve several positive purposes and bring pride to the local communities. But how do we do this? Reflect on your own experience. When we think about our hometown, we remember special places and people. We get nostalgic about the good old days and all those childhood memories with dear friends. We come from somewhere after all. But how does that place shape us as individuals? How does it influence our values and perspectives of the world? And how does that impact on who we are today? However small or unremarkable your town might appear to you right now, there is so much hidden potential waiting to be discovered. Each town has an identity. It just might not be apparent yet. We need to take time to understand it and bring out its true potential, whatever that may be. In truth, every town was built on a certain set of values, briefs, and traditions that heavily influence the town's identity. Understanding each town's cultural heritage will help us identify how each town came to be, its socioeconomic makeup, and the values it stands for. For example, some towns grow on the strength of being a farmer's market, 
where people have been coming to trade for ages. This, in fact, might describe the majority of our towns in Kenya and East Africa. But other towns were characterized by industries set up in the area, which provided employment and spurred the growth of a commercial center. Your town might not have a thriving culture or social scene, but it might have some natural assets to offer. Maybe a waterfall in the area, or a natural feature that visitors would want to interact with. Whatever is truly unique and special about a town, it's important to identify it. Whatever is the town's unique assets, they could be developed into a thriving tourist economy. When I go to the city of Nakuru in Kenya, for example, I'm overwhelmed by anxiety of all I know about the town. All at once, I want to see the Lake Nakuru, and I want to see the Melegai Crater. I want to experience the Rift Valley, and I want to see flamingos. I'm disappointed when I do not see an invitation to partake in any of uh, these experiences. Many people when they visit or pass through a town only see what's currently happening. They don't bother to look for what has been happening for years. But if you want to bring more people to a town and truly revitalize it, you have to search for the good things that are going on. There are events that will cause people to come over and visit. But what about those natural assets we discussed? Well, they could be the key to attracting more visitors and transforming the town into a thriving tourist economy. The trick to doing this successfully is to think vertically. Your natural assets represent a single aspect of your town, but they could be used to create a multi-layered experience. For example, it is possible to create periodic festivals, taking a theme from this. It's also possible to formulate more permanent forums for educative and entertainment purposes, springing from these themes. Using Nakuru again as an example, there is opportunity to create a museum of natural history focusing on the geological science of the Rift Valley. If the managers of our towns focus on the necessary revitalization, they may well encounter some obstacles, but that shouldn't stop them from trying. There will be the need for a roadmap for the revitalization effort. The roadmap might include several different strategies, such as improving on public transportation, adding new amenities to the town, or investing in local businesses to help them uh, to thrive. They might even want to consider organizing a town meeting to discuss the revitalization efforts with other residents. Every town is a special place, and it's important to learn about its history and cultural identity. To revitalize the town and make it more attractive place to live and visit, we need to understand what makes each of them different from other places. This is important, no matter how small the town is, as every place has something unique to offer to both residents and visitors. We need to explore the true potential of our towns and create stronger, more vibrant communities for the future. And now for this week's excerpt of Not Here to Huru, read by Obi Obiero Diambo. Life in our village followed an even routine. The elders woke first each morning, got their pangas ready, and went to prepare the plots for the work that would follow that day. The children were awakened by them as they were leaving for the land, and our first duty was to milk the cows. 
We delivered the milk to the huts where the women, with the young girls at their side, were waiting to churn the butter. When we boys had done the milking, we tied the animals near the granaries and ran to our houses to drink milk with corn, a millet flour bread that is red in color, which had been prepared the day before. When we went to the land to dig the ground cleared by our fathers, sometimes we worked in groups. At other times, we worked our fathers' individual holdings. While we dug, the very young children were in charge of grazing the goats and the sheep. At about ten o'clock, our fathers left the land and returned to the village. An hour or so later, we boys had to return home to release the cattle from their stakes and take them to the grazing fields. This was the time we enjoyed, for we arranged between ourselves for some of us to tend the animals, while the rest took part in games. We wrestled, and raced one another. If there was a pond nearby, we swam. The elders were always at a distance, supervising us, watching to see if our animals strayed into a garden. And when we neglected our duties, they appeared among us to chastise us. By midday. The women had returned to the village to prepare food and cultivate the vegetable plots, assisted by the girls. In the afternoon, the elders went back to the lands to clear the areas we would have to dig the following day, and some of the boys were taken with them to learn how best to clear the bush. In the evening, we brought the cows home and milked them, leaving the milk in the churns for the next morning's butter. When we had to clean and sweep the village, while our fathers sat in the offices and watched us at work, it was in the evenings that our fathers would meet the elders from nearby villages. The women would bring beer, and the men would drink it as they talked, exchanging the news. Whether anyone had gone on safari, they would discuss the work they were planning for the village for the subsequent day. The women were ready with the food at about seven o'clock, and the elders sat in their respective offices to be served with it. The children from each hut had to carry the food to the elder. This was the time that the sons joined their fathers to enjoy the food prepared in the various huts. Some women had cooked vegetables, others fish, meat, or chicken, and all taken together, there was a variety of dishes. But the elders were strict about our eating. Encouraging us to eat more corn or cassava rather than meat, and reprimanding the boys who ate greedily. When the evening meal was over, we sat at the feet of the elders. For now, they would gather in the office of the chief village elder and discuss the problems of the village. We boys listened attentively. The elders might instruct us about our duties, or they might tell stories. The stories of the elders were. One of our two sources of education in the village, the other source, was the harpist who played an important role in the community. The harpist learned at the feet of the elders and expressed the people's philosophy in musical and poetic language. The Lua people live around the lake, and their harpist drew imagery and source of inspiration from the water. Through their songs, the harpies chanted words of inspiration to the warriors, praised famous wrestlers, admired beautiful girls, recognized keen farmers whose granaries were always full. Their humor was entertaining. They acknowledged men who were experts at courting, and through whom others managed to secure wives. 
They praised men and women who had achieved distinction in the community. They condemned thieves, lazy people, cowards, and people with bad habits. In the community, the harpists were a recognized institution, awarding approval to individual and communal achievements and admonishing and reprimanding those who did not come up to standards. Listen to Chemsha Bongo on our website, acute.co.ke. Chemsha Bongo is an acute media production.